And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, as you know, we're coming up on the holiday season, and by holiday, I mean Halloween. And this is my favorite time of the year because I get to explore the dark and mysterious topics that I love, and this year is absolutely no exception. So first up, we are going to talk with Dr. Kendall Phillips, who wrote a book called Kolchak, the Night Stalker. And for those of you who don't know, this is a series from the 70s that arguably is one of the most influential television series especially when it comes to the supernatural, but possibly of all time. I mean, one could make that argument. Uh, So we're going to talk about that today, and I'm very excited. Now, I have to admit, before researching this, I hadn't seen an episode. So this is another one of those those great times where I was able to dive headfirst into a topic I've been looking forward to for a very long time. So hopefully you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed the series. And let's get get into the holiday spirit here. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Kendall Phillips. are you doing? You know, I also want to make sure that I'm talking to the right Kendall Phillips because there, you're not Kendall Phillips, the country music singer, are you? I am actually. Yes, I'm. I'm. I was a 16 year old girl on American <laughs> Idol. I've gone through some. Ch- you know, actually, funnily enough, as, yeah. as we were talking earlier, I, I, I have a little podcast uh, called Pop Life, and uh-huh. I did interview Kendall Phillips because no I thought it'd be funny to have Kendall Phillips talk to Kendall Phillips, and she was amazing. I recommend her. Really? She's a great guest. Yeah. Super interesting. Lots of insights about <laughs> American Idol and the music industry. She was I, I, it was a goof, really, yeah. but yeah. it was a tremendous conversation. I, I absolutely love talking to her. Oh, that's fast. Oh, I mean, look, I I got to give you props here, Kendall. You know, I was watching a lot of your stuff, read your book. I feel like you and I are kindred spirits, and nothing has secured that more in my mind than you starting off the show with a shameless plug. Uh, I, I do it constantly. I, I sprinkle shameless plugs from my other podcasts throughout the episode, the little Easter eggs for my fans. They love it. Uh, but you did it right off top of the bat. Um, I was going to talk about your show later on, but let's let's hit it early. It's it's uh, it's called Pop Life. Uh, it's on NPR and it's it's uh, I, I love it. I, I was listening to one episode on Steve. I think you had Steve Grinelli. I hope I'm getting the name right. Um, pro exactly. wrestling fan. Near and dear to my heart, you know, um, I thought I was going to have a career in, in pro wrestling. Turns out that I make a podcast from my living room. So it, past diverge, <laughs> he went the academic route and it was quite an amazing conversation. And I love the show. So how did that come about? How do you know him? Uh, tell me a little bit. Yeah. So uh, Pop Life has actually been around before me. Uh, it was started oh, wow. back when po- I think NPR started having you know local affiliate stations Think about getting into the podcast area. A fabulous guy named Joe Lee, who was the station manager at WAER, started Pop Life. Um, I was actually just a guest a couple of times. And Mm -hmm. then Joe took a job in New Jersey Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to lose the show. And so they asked if I would, you know, come on and try and do it. It's been great. We are an interview show. We try to talk to 
people involved in pop culture, but really people who can kind of help us think deeper. And so Steve Grinelli is, is a longtime friend and former student. So that's how old I am. Oh, wow. Uh, and I knew Steve loved <laughs> pro wrestling. And I've always yeah. kind of been aware of pro wrestling, but not sure. necessarily deeply involved. And so we, we had a lot of fun chatting. Yeah, it's great. I mean, well, you do know this, and I don't want to burst any bubbles here, Kendall. Um, but if the show existed before you, you know it can exist after you. Oh, oh, they tell me that every time I walk in the building. Every time I walk in the building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One okay. more, and yeah. then you're on the you're on That's the it. You're out of here. Well, so that's not what you do. I mean, that's kind of what you do in addition to your work at Syracuse University. Uh, you know, I found, found it a little difficult to nail down exactly like what your – Title's the wrong word, but I guess, uh, you know, your um, what, what you teach, who you are, right? I mean, because you've got several books on horror in film and television. You did one on directors. You did one on early horror in cinema. Uh, you know, and and obviously we're going to talk about Kolchak, your book, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, today. Uh, but this was great because I, I want to know exactly how, how you classify yourself. But just quickly, I got to tell you, I'm a film television student. Reading your book was such a trip down memory lane because I haven't read a film or TV theory book in a long time. So it, it was a lot of fun. But tell me, what exactly, how would you describe what you do? Oh, God, I don't even know anymore. That's the good thing about being old is I never have to actually write that letter that says, I do this. Like, I, I just um, – but <laughs> right, actually, yeah. my, my field of study, which is uh, even weirder, is is rhetoric, uh, which okay. is a kind of traditionally thinking of like public speaking or writing. But more broadly, I would say it's about cultural persuasion and politics and how we kind of make sense of the world. And so mm-hmm. much of my work is media pop culture. Mm-hmm. Some of it's actually related to politics. So I actually do things with – international organizations about advocacy. So I kind of end up in lots of different places, but for the most part, I'm just interested in how we come to make sense of the world and then how we change that. And of course, one of the ways we make sense of the world is by telling scary stories. And we've been doing that since humans have been around. So (laughs) Right. I guess that's true. Well, I mean, you know, early humans, you know, just living in in, like living in a savanna (laughs) in Africa was a scary story. (laughs) Living close to the oasis where the the watering hole uh, was an absolute nightmare. Uh, But but why horror? Right. I mean, you know, you you seem like a guy who could have gone into anything. Um, clearly you were attracted to horror. You didn't go in, you know, you didn't, you didn't stick strictly with politics for some reason, the horror bug, the horror magnet attracted you like a moth to the flame, uh, you know, towards certain death. Why was this, you know, how did this happen for you? Why why was it this particular genre? Yeah, I think for me, and and you kind of hit the nail on the head, I was fascinated by the reaction people had to horror. I, 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 okay. And I, like a lot of people who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, I saw Halloween when it came out. I, wa- I didn't see Kolchak when it came out, but I caught it on reruns in the early 80s. So I was in that world. But I was really interested in, you know, how intense people's responses to, you know, particular horror films. So you think of like right. the, the way people freaked out about The Exorcist or about Psycho. Um, you know, there were protests over the silence of the lambs. So I was interested in how <laughs> yeah. that becomes so political because, you know, traditional politics is political by definition, but that people get, you know, kind of really upset or really excited about a movie, about a fictional monster. Like I wanted to understand that. And so 20 years later, I'm still trying to understand that. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm I assume you are as well, but I'm a fan of American Horror Story. And, uh, you know, it's they got ups and downs, but it's mostly mostly pretty good. But I remember after and this isn't a political show, but uh, after the 2016 election, I remember that the showrunners were so upset at the outcome that they dedicated an entire season to 
<laughs> to, to, to the outcome, which which is to say the reason why I'm saying the reason why I'm pointing this out is that what's interesting about that to me is that you have instead of just the movie influencing the culture and the people watching it, uh, you know, the, the other aspect of that, which is what you and I study or you study now and what I studied when I was in school was how do the filmmakers or television uh, creators, how do they craft a narrative that tells the story or, you know, infuses their politics into that narrative while kind of, you know, I don't want to say force feeding, but I also want to say force feeding the audience, you know, their own political views. Uh, but that's the other weird side of this coin as well. Uh, it completely is. And I think the other part of that that's really tricky is not being too overtly political. Because mm -hmm. we've all seen movies that were like a painfully obvious analogy. You know, the monster is it. I actually think, you know, a good example of that is uh, if you've seen the Forever Purge, which was the most recent Purge movie, which I which I liked, I, I like I liked the Purge series. Really, but the Forever Purge was just so ripped from the headlines. I mean, mm -hmm. there were people with trucks with flags in the back. Right. Again, I'm not trying to be political, but it was like <laughs> right. you, we've seen you know, the images. You didn't have to. <laughs> you didn't have to use your imagination to imagine that's pretty close to what's happening in the streets now. And I think when it gets to that point, it gets less scary because it's so obviously somebody's political point of view, whereas right. Right. other films, you know, are able to put the political dimensions, but it, you kind of have to do the work to see it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, a classic example, which you've mentioned um, on several other interviews is Night of the Living Dead, which is, you know, growing up when I was a kid, I saw that movie. Uh, and it terrified me. I remember going across the street to a babysitter uh, and when I was very young, too young to be watching Night of the Living Dead. But I grew up in a very rural part. I spent like, you know, part of my seventh grade through high school in this very rural part. So when I was in seventh grade, I feel like I'm embarrassing myself here. But I was, you know, how old are you? That You're like 12, 13. Uh, maybe I could have handled the Night of the Living Dead. Anyway, the point is I lived in a lot of cornfields. And right after watching that movie, I had to walk across the street back home in the dead middle of night. Uh, I was terrified. You know, uh, is what I'm trying to say, Kendall. So, uh, but also, I, I I went off my point here. Uh, my point is that at the end of that that movie is very political, but in a very subtle way. Um, wasn't just to terrify seven seventh graders. It was also to prove a point, which is what you're saying. Actually, and oddly enough, about Night of the Living Dead, when it was first released, mm -hmm. uh, the company that released it wasn't really paying much attention. I don't think they ever watched it. They released it as part of a double feature to kids matinees. So it was like Attack of the Saucer People. <laughs> And then Night of the Living Dead. And Roger oh, Ebert, great. no less than Roger Ebert, wrote a very famous editorial in the Chicago Sun-Times about how can people let their kids see this? This was horrible. It should, you know, and talking about these kids yeah. sobbing in their seats being traumatized. <laughs> by that. But yeah, I think without a doubt, there's certainly a lot of shock and a lot of gore in Night of the Living Dead. But it is the way it draws on the civil rights movement, Vietnam, yep. the protests, the anger, the violence, mm -hmm. and all that comes together in a film that's not a explicitly political, but is so deeply, meaningfully political. Well, especially at the time. And I'm glad that you, um, you know, I feel like I had the true Night of the Living Dead experience the way it was intended in theaters, I guess, kind of, right? Uh, so I feel good about that. Um, but, you know, but it's 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 also, you know, with when things are political, I remember, uh, you know, with, this is going to sound like a weird tangent, but I think you'll appreciate it. Uh, the Mary, uh, not the Mary Tyler Moore show, um, the Dick Van Dyke show is famous for not having any political markers 
in any political jokes in the show because it becomes timeless, right? I mean, obviously people don't write TV shows on typewriters anymore, uh, but the show becomes timeless. Once you add politics into it, it becomes dated, and then it's a it's a moment of that particular time. But what's interesting about Night of the Living Dead is, as you said, it is a it is this this product of all the political turmoil at the time, and yet. It's not overt. So now we are, you know, uh, what? I can't do math very well, but 40, 50 years out from that movie. 54 years out. 54. So. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's why you're the doctor. Uh, so <laughs> 54 years out, you can still watch it. You can get all that stuff. Some of the, you know, but, but the movie doesn't like have the punch, right? Like having an African-American protagonist survive a zombie apocalypse only to get shot at the end. That is powerful. It still holds up today. But at that time, that said a lot more than it says today. Yeah, the, definitely the poignancy. But I do think I think you're exactly right, and this is why I find these films and, and television shows so interesting, is that by virtue of kind of taking the politics of their moment and diffusing them through this kind of fictional uh, narrative structure, they can sometimes kind of discern these essentially timeless political struggles. You know, right. Night of the Living Dead is very much about Vietnam right. and the civil rights movement at a particular moment in 1968 where the Vietnam War is now unwinnable, so says Cronkite. And, you know, you've had the Democratic National Convention and all that anger. And yet, if we could just, you know, get rid of uh, its, its sort of uh, aged qualities, that same film is just as meaningful today. Mm -hmm. with our angry politics and yeah, police brutality yeah. and Black Lives Matter, et yep. cetera. Like, it's the same thing. And I think what makes a film like that timeless or continually meaningful is that it picks up specifics and turns them into these iconic monsters and protagonists and heroes, and we can keep finding meaning in those stories. Yeah, that, that does make sense, because now that you've said that, now I feel like a dope, because I think that movie actually does hold up for all the reasons that you said. And in a lot of ways, the ending uh, <laughs> actually is just as powerful today as it was back then, 54 years ago. Um, but you sadly, start, I mean... Sadly, we, that's true. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is, sadly. Uh, but you said one thing that, uh, that I love every guest to say, which is, you know, you're you're exactly right. So thank you for that part, even though at the end of the sentence, I did feel like like a dope. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I could talk about horror forever. And and this is, this is part one of my of my Halloween series here. I've got a creature, a double creature feature uh, this year, and, and I'm excited to talk about this with you, with you, Kendall, because Kolchak, the Night Stalker, the television show. You wrote this this great book on it, uh, and great not only because it's relatively short, uh, but it's also extraordinarily poignant. <laughs> so it's it's and, and pretty cheap. I want to point out and pretty cheap. So just <laughs> yes, to put that out, there. very very affordable. Uh, uh, and the full title is Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Uh, is there anything any subtitle? I don't. I, I didn't write it down. I don't think so. Right? No. It's, so it, it is. It's part of both the the size, the cheapness, and the title. Uh, yeah. It, this is part of uh, Wayne. State University has this uh, series called TV Milestones. Got it. Okay. And so there's a wonderful library of, of again, they have very strict word limit. Trust me, they're very strict okay. <laughs> with the word limit because they wanted to push beyond that. Um, but these very short, uh, accessible, hopefully, volumes about films or TV shows that people feel are iconic, that change the history of television. So you've got The Honeymooners and I Love Lucy, you've got Miami Vice, you've got The Twilight Zone. And I wanted to get Kolchak the Night Stalker into that series as one of those milestones. <laughs> well, a, I think it's available now, so we'll have links to this, obviously, because you're going to want to pick up this book after this conversation. Uh, but for me, yeah, I'm going to I want to hear uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my just very quickly tell you about my entry into Kolchak, and then I want to hear how you got into it. But what I loved about picking this up is 
I, I'm a fan of all the horror series. I love the X-Files. I loved Fringe. Um, you know, I would put Lost kind of in that category because that started a whole weird um, cycle of these kind of supernat- supernatural elements infused into classic television shows, be they procedural dramas, cop shows, whatever. I, I, I really enjoy that. And I've, I'd always heard about Kolchak, the Night Stalker, but I'd never seen an episode at all. As a matter of fact, I hadn't seen an episode or read anything about it until this this show, uh, until I decided to to do it here. I knew its influence, but I, I hadn't actually seen it. I wanted to go back to to you know the origin story. So that's how I got into this. So I'm very excited about it, and we'll get into the details. But I'm curious, how did you? You wrote a book on this, so how did you get into this? It must have captured you. It must have grabbed you at some point and, and brought you in. So how did that? How did that come about? So I, I I'm not quite old enough to have watched well i'm old enough to have watched the original cold check series but i would have been four so okay. all right fortunately <laughs> whatever my guardians were doing or not doing they did not uh, subject me or, or i don't remember sure i found cold check uh when it was rerun as part of cbs late night so back before cbs uh, had david letterman and and their kind of version of the tonight show right cbs late night was just kind of a i would call it a kind of dumping ground for rerun series, so Barnaby Jones, Rockford Files, they used to show the NBA finals. They'd rebroadcast them because they didn't play them live, so they'd rebroadcast <laughs> from like ten to midnight or whatever. Okay, I, as about eight or about an eight year old, was looking at the old TV guide. So people may remember oh, wow. that. Yeah, uh, and I saw a show called The Avengers. Now, as a dyed in the wool Marvel fan, I was beside myself. Someone has made a TV show of Hey-o. my favorite comic book. Right. So I break out of curfew, sneak down to the living room, turn on the TV as low as I can get, and then watch the British spy show and thought, <laughs> that's not the Avengers, but I right. was hooked. So I, the key was I was hooked. Yeah. So I became this sort of regular, uh, you know, surreptitious, mm-hmm. nocturnal uh, TV watcher <laughs> sneaking down at 11 o'clock, way past my bedtime, my sure. parents were asleep, and I would, and in that, it, it was on a Friday night, uh, this TV show, Kolchak the Night Stalker, and it was about a female vampire that had emerged in Las Vegas and shows up in her home in Los Angeles and creates havoc. And I was terrified, and I was shocked, and I was hooked. And so every time Kolchak was on, I made a point of going down and watching that. Uh, and then, of course, many years later, I thought, someone should recognize that series. Like, that was actually more important than people give it credit for. And I think that that's exactly right, because, you know, I, I had always heard some of the rumors about what it did for the how it's kind of started a genre. But in your book, you really kind of nail them out. Um, but before we get into that, I just realized in my notes here, uh, your brother took you to see Halloween in 1978. Now, you do mark that as being the genesis of getting into horror movies. You didn't mention that earlier. Was that to save face or to protect your brother? Or what happened here? Because it sounds like <laughs> he either traumatized you or sent you down the path that you're on. One of the two. Or both. I think probably both. Yeah. yeah I think, uh, you know, God bless Scott. If you're watching, uh, you know, you know what you did. Um, in so, <laughs> that so many that ways. summer, right. Um, but no, he was, and, and, and him taking me to, to Halloween, I think this is probably what a lot of young people experience. He had seen it. Now, my brother's about eight years older than I am. So, so he was uh, you know able to see that. Uh, what happened was he saw it and came in at home late at night and told me the story of Halloween. Okay. And that was horrifying. Mm-hmm. So then I had to see it, right? I, I, he, his recounting was terrifying enough that I had to actually go see Halloween. But I've always liked Kolchak because Kolchak was the horror narrative that I found. 
Mm-hmm. Like, that was my discovery. Right. Like, I, don't, I, my, I don't know. Actually, don't even know if my brother knows the series, but I found it, and it was like my secret yeah. midnight yeah. terror. Right. And I can have this little thing myself, and and it really has stuck with me all these years. Older brother, younger brother. Uh, my brother's a lot older. I, I was the mistaken child. I was the you could never have children again. And then six years later, whoops, whoops, there you it is. Yeah, it yeah. turns out you can. Uh, okay, so being a younger brother, you were in the shadow, uh, so to speak. So you wanted to to get out. I love that. Um, it, one other thing. Okay, I'm taking us down one more tangent, and then I'm getting back to Kolchak. But in an interview, I just wanted to give you uh, respect for this. You talk about Rob Zombie and how much you don't like his his movies because he did a Halloween series, and I could not agree with you more. I saw that. The Devil's Rejects. And when I was done with it, and maybe this goes a film student, I was wondering to myself, why are we taking these backwoods serial killers and trying to make them the these empathetic, sympathetic heroes of a movie? I didn't buy it for one second. Um, forget, you know, him putting his terrible wife into the movies and every single one of them. But uh, th- like when you're trying to construct a narrative like that, you, you, the, I was just didn't buy in at all. But there are people who, you know, that love his movies, uh, which is fine, you know, whatever. But uh, it was nice to hear someone say, I think they're kind of enamored by the production value in the, the, the cinematography and the production design, which is gorgeous for a horror movie. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. But as far as the movie goes, it was nice to hear Kindred Spirit. Uh, I felt like, you know, I wasn't the only one out in the woods, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I admire Rob Zombie. He, he's done a lot more than I will ever do. Absolutely. I actually like his music, so I, I wish he'd stay there. I'm with you with that, too. Uh, I, I would say for me, Rob Zombie is to horror what Zack Snyder is to superhero <laughs> narratives. <laughs> Zack Snyder has the great ability to get an iconic moment shot. Like, you yeah. go, oh. Yeah. Wow, that's exactly what it, the comic book looked like. He just can't tell a story. Yeah. Rob Zombie can make amazing monsters. He just can't create a sympathetic victim that makes us care. Right. Right. So if I just want to watch a monster kill, I'll watch Rob Zombie. But that's not a very compelling narrative. That's a video game. Right. right? I, I need right. to feel some <laughs> desire for the people to live. And, and almost every Rob Zombie movie, the minute I meet the victims or the the you know the the the, the protagonists, I think. You could die right now. I, don't, I actually matter. don't care. I, right. I actually I don't like you. <laughs> well, it was great. It was great to hear someone else say that um, because I always felt the same way, which is interesting because that kind of leads us into Kolchek, because one of the interesting things about Kolchek, uh, at least one of the criticisms for sure, is that, you know, for those who don't know, it's basically a, a supernatural environment. Investigate. It's kind of like a procedural, but Kolchek is actually an investigative reporter, but he's secretly investigating all these supernatural events. But one of the criticisms of the series is that nothing ever sticks week to week. You know, it's it's definitely monster of the week. Um, I mean, I remember there was one example early on where this woman comes into the show. Uh, I forget I forget her name, um, but she's the 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 uh, niece of the head of the paper, and so Kolchak has to kind of take her under her under under his wing, and they run around. And through either that one or the next episode, they encounter uh, a monster, and she's terrified out of her wits, and she's she get you know she goes back to New York, and you know Vincenzo calls him in and says you know so and so is no longer with us, she's back in New York, and and that's the end of the episode, you know. Start next week. The next <laughs> the next episode starts up. Hit the credits, and all of a sudden she's there, and now she's developing photographs for some reason. Uh, so it's almost like a cartoon. It's almost like The Simpsons, where it resets every week. Uh, there's no there is no connection from week to week for the episodes, and you know not only. But but and I'm saying this up front because that may have been the show's weakness. But I think you can agree that correcting that mistake and making the shows that followed it 
uh, have a serial storyline, which is something the unique advantage of television. That innovation is what really made all the episodes, the shows that followed it special, lasting, and memorable. No, I think you're exactly right. It was Monique was the character. Monique, you're right. Uh, yeah, who was, sorry. Uh, I think the daughter or niece of the head of the the, the newspaper, so they kind of had to keep her. Sure. She graduated from Columbia. That's right. Um, That's and right. you're right. A lot of potential in that character. A lot of potential in lots of characters to have through lines and stories and memory, but that doesn't happen. But your favorite phrase that I have, you're also right. Um, <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that uh, that I think folks like Chris Carter or even Joss Whedon and certainly Eric Kripke, you know, that's uh, X-Files and Buffy and then Supernatural, the longest running of all those, mm-hmm. did pick up on that. And particularly, I think Chris Carter was really good at seeing you needed to have – the occasional one-off episode. Like we don't really want constantly the suspense building forever. Otherwise, you know, when does it pay off? We want some moments. But the X-Files was really brilliant at having these one-off episodes, but then always stitching together that bigger conspiracy, the UFOs, the whatever, right? That kept us coming back. And to your point, the characters also learned. Yep. That's and right. that was one of my frustrations going back and watching through all the Kolchak movies, the two movies, and all the, the TV sh- uh, episodes, the 20 episodes of the series, right. was Kolchak never – other than the vampire, that's the one thing you remember that, he deals with Satan and then he deals with witches. He deals with a cyborg, a, 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 a revived caveman, and an underground lizard, and yet none of those seem connected. There's never a moment where Kolchak says – wait a minute, this might be like that other thing. It, right. He just is constantly starting afresh. <laughs> right. Every every single time. You know, it's funny. Uh, so when I I've got my first job at Warner Brothers, I was actually with the, the production executive on Supernatural. And so that was when it first started. So when the pilot came out, I remember watching it and being like, oh, this is going to be my new my new favorite show. Uh, and it was, it was fantastic. I mean, I think the fifth season of Supernatural should have won Emmys. I know that sounds bananas hearing it now. Uh, but if you really watch that show, and the the pitting the brother against brother and you know Michael and 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 Lucifer and then the third I mean fantastic story writing I mean it was really good and it went on as you said for fifteen years uh, but that that show was clearly influenced by Kolchak but I want to say something I want to get your opinion on this because someone who was coming into Kolchak right so my vision of Kolchak was more of like a hard boiled PI who you know was was fighting these supernatural creatures of the darkness and more like a Batman type character without um you know without the gadgets and and necessarily the the um the the anger inside of him for trying to do right but just trying to vanquish these these villains uh but it turns out that's not it at all and i never understood the the calling it kolchek the night stalker because in some ways the night stalks him he's more like kolchek the night stalky right i mean it, the, and the night stalker <laughs> the night stalker movie was a vampire uh, so this seemed like it seemed like a crazy uh, title, um, kind of a, a hapless, you know, clumsy, inept character in a lot of ways. He's very goofy. He's like your, you know, he's like your drunk uncle in a lot of ways, except he didn't drink. Um, anyway, this is so what I thought it was and what it actually was were so different. It didn't mean that it was better or worse. I, I, I don't know, you know, uh, did you experience anyone else thinking that at all? Or I mean, I guess you saw it early on. So uh, my question sounds dumb now. But what, no, what do you think? No, I, I completely agree. I mean, the addition of Night Stalker to the TV series title 
was partly because the original TV movie that was just right. called The Night Stalker, first time most people, first time anybody ever heard of Carl Kolchak, yeah. um, was enormously successful. It was the, the record-breaking, most-watched TV movie in history and kept that title for several years. So it was massive. Yeah. Um, I think it was like a third of TV sets yeah. were watching that genuinely. So <laughs> yes, a big, big right. show. Yeah. So when they do Kolchak, they want to remind people – so they add that, but you're right. It's it's a little bit of a. They took the vampire name because the vampire right. Scorzini was the Night Stalker, and they say, "Well, we'll just borrow that for for Carl." Because um, <laughs> the, the second one was called the Night Strangler. It was Kolchak the Night right. Strangler. I mean, they didn't call the series that for obvious reasons, but I mean, <laughs> you know. But it's just strange. You know, somehow the Night Stalker just and it's got a great title. I mean, again, Richard Ramirez would get uh, tagged with that, which is the other problem. When I say to people, right. I wrote a book about the Night Stalker, they want to ask me about what I think of Jeffrey Dahmer, and I think, no, wrong. <laughs> wrong I guy. do fictional stuff. Yeah. The real stuff stays out there. I don't want to yeah, do it. Yeah. But but I think you're you know we would now expect partly just because of the way the heroic narrative has developed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Something like Batman. And in fact, when they tried to reboot the Night Stalker in 2005 uh, with a much better looking uh, uh, lead actor, and he was dark and brooding and wore leather jackets and sort of like was at night, and he fit your your profile, what mm -hmm. you would expect. Right. You know, young, fit, leather jacket, you know, brooding. Yeah. Um, Carl Kolchak, the original at least, was much more in the line of that Mike Hammer private investigator and that classic rumpled investigative reporter. Yeah. I always think yeah. very similar and about the same time uh, was Columbo, who's always, yeah. you know, Peter Falk in his rumpled jacket saying, but just, just, just one more thing, just one more thing. And that one more thing always got people. And that was much more the spirit of what heroes looked like in the 70s. They were older, they were rumpled, they'd been beaten up by the world, but they were always there with that one more question that just answered the, the, the mystery. And that's not what we expect now. Now we expect people who are, you know, doing CrossFit and <laughs> I don't know, wearing leather. Right, yeah. I'm not sure what we look like. <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's right. Well, it's funny because you know, there's this this comic book character named John Constantine, uh, who, speaking of supernatural, Castiel literally rips off his look. I mean, to the thread, <laughs> by the way. Uh, but John Constantine, <laughs> in a lot of ways, is Columbo. I didn't think about this till you said it, but he's Columbo meets you know, Carl Kolchak. I mean, that's really who John Constantine yeah. is, right? I mean, um, but hey, well, how about that suit? You know, you mentioned the seersucker suit, which I'd never really heard of seersucker. Uh, do you actually know what seersucker is? Yeah, it's a fabric that's it's still popular. I grew up in Texas, so okay, not, you know. not my right, part right. of the South, but a little bit Southeast. Yeah. If you go, if we were to go to Savannah, I am sure someone <laughs> in the summer is sitting in, in a seersucker suit. Yeah. Um, they're very much a summer suit. It's a very lightweight uh, and, that was, you know, Darren McGavin, when he starred in the original TV movie, really wanted to focus on Kolchak, not as a Vegas reporter, but as a New York reporter whose career had kind of tumbled down the ladder mm -hmm. and he ended up in Vegas. And so the reason, at least in McGavin's mind, that Carl Kolchak would risk his life to go get a vampire is because he thought this is the story that would get him back to New York, back to the New York Times, back into the Pulitzer Prize conversation. So it was all about ambition. Carl Kolchak was all about ambition. And that seersucker suit, it's like the person who was a, a, a athlete in high school who's still wearing their letter jacket around. <laughs> like it's, Carl Kolchak still wants to be that guy who was in the seersucker suit in the middle of it in New York, even though now it's many, many years later. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I When I was in college, um, one of my friends, uh, he uh, actually who who – 
talks about Carl Kolchak a lot. I actually <laughs> referenced him in my last episode too. Uh, but he had this roommate who was apparently a boxer in high school. Okay, but you know this was in college, and he'd been taking time away from college, so he was probably five to six years out of his prime fighting weight. And he was a heavy smoker and he was overweight and wasn't eating well. But I remember he would always come by and just talk about wanting to get back into fighting shape, you know, and it's, you know, there's always, there's always that, like that, that, that I I love that explanation because when you're talking about Carl Kolchak, to me, that is the quintessential part of him. They should have hit that more like, uh, you know, a reporter who's, who's tumbling down the ladder. No one wants to watch their career go into the toilet and, and chasing that as, as a, as a motivation for every Every episode wanting to get that story. I'm going to crack. I'm going to shed light on the darkness. And that's what's going to bring me back to the big time. They never really hit on that. I mean, kind of ever. They don't, they never it, push it, that along. It's a lot in the first and second TV movie, and particularly the first one. Right. There's a little, there's one moment in, in one of my favorite episodes uh, is uh, The Devil's Platform. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. This is about a Senate a candidate for a Senate office in Illinois who has made a deal with the devil. Um, part of which allows him to turn into an indestructible dog. So I'm not quite sure how that works in satanic mythology, but oh, it works. The, the key to it is he, he, he's made this deal with the devil, and in the climactic moment when Kolchak confronts him, he offers Kolchak a deal. And he says, I know what you really want. You're ambitious. You want to get back to New York. You want to get back to a Pulitzer Prize. I can make that happen if you'll make a deal. And, of course, Kolchak doesn't read. Now, I'll just quickly say the reason that's one of my favorite episodes is – there's a line in the episode about when Kolchak is concerned that this could put Satan in the White House, and this episode came out about four weeks after Nixon resigned after Watergate. Right. So talk about political lineup. Right. Most Americans in 1974, if you said Satan could be in the White House, at least half the country would have said he just was. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that and that's fascinating because that is it is interesting how you know in a lot of ways you know that old saying history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes. Um, that's why a lot of these things resonate with people's because they can see what they want to in these episodes, you know, and it's also funny with the seersucker suit, because to me, it's, it's bright white, really. I mean, it's pinstripe, but it's bright white and he stands out like a beacon, you know, I mean, even Kolchak, the night beacon would have been a better title for this show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, but you know, another cool thing about this particular show, and actually the next show I'm going to do is going to be about this as well, which is genre blending, you know, and, and I think what I really like about this in kind of what I like about shows, you know, the next episode I'm going to do is on the Weird West, which is infusing supernatural elements into the Wild West. And this kind of takes film noir, which is, you know, I love genre films. I, I love those those very niche genre films. But taking that and then adding the supernatural element to me is a lot of fun because, you know, he's an investigative reporter. You do see uh, there's lots of voiceover. He always has a camera and a tape recorder with him. Uh, and, and you kind of describe him I don't know if this is, I'm guessing this is wholly new to your book, but you describe him as a gothic investigator. Um, uh, and, and I want to talk about that a little bit. I play this game called Arkham Horror. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a board game and in it, you play a gothic investigator and doing exactly all the things that you mentioned. And so it's just interesting to see that not only does the influence of Kolchak exist in television and film, but it also in a lot of board games and the way people kind of reimagine H.P. Lovecraft in this particular board game. Um, but but let's talk about this. So let, what, let's talk about the gothic investigator. What exactly do you mean by that? And what makes that unique to this show and, and how it is going forward? 
Absolutely. So if you think of most of your horror or gothic narratives prior to Kolchak, and, and, and whether you're talking about novels or, or films or even the few little television shows that dealt with it, we almost always were focused on a place. Um, so like in Dark Shadows, which was Dan Curtis's uh, long-running uh, kind of semi-gothic horror soap opera, it was uh, Collingwood in Maine or it's Hill House. Or we focused on a victim, which was fairly common. Like, you know, we have this person who's being pursued by monsters, or we focused on the monster. Right, yep. Many of those narratives had a gothic monster hunter, but they were always like a side character. It's like a Van Helsing and Dracula. He just sort of shows up, explains things, and helps them vanquish <laughs> right. the vampire. Right, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the marvel of Kolchak that I think is really the, the game changer is they took that gothic world and focused on that investigator. And to do that, they used exactly some of the tropes you're talking about, the hard-boiled detective mm -hmm. from film noir, but also the reporter who you know kind of always has a very high uh, status in American popular imagination. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the 70s, Definitely. we'd had the Pentagon Papers. We would, during the series, have Watergate. So the idea of an of a investigative reporter who's a little bit of a private investigator. And again, Darren McGavin had previously been on TV as Mike Hammer, right. so the classic Mickey Splain PI. Right. So he was the perfect person to do that and then put the focus on the monster hunter, right? Not just as a person going out and killing monsters, but as the person who has to figure it out, like that whole police procedural. So you get those blending of the gothic, the newspaper, the noir, and the police procedural wrapped together. Yeah. Again, I don't as we talked about, I don't think Kolchak quite gets it perfect, but the blueprint is there. And folks like Chris Carter and others would say, Oh yeah, I can do that. Or and even David Lynch with Twin Peaks. Like it's a similar sort of idea. Let's focus on the Kyle McLaughlin character as opposed to focusing on other things. Like we'll follow the investigator. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I want to uh, I want to just quickly comment on the Twin Peaks thing. It's funny because I, you mentioned it a couple times in the book, and I love Twin Peaks. I mean, I, I actually saw it when it came out, and I was a, a big fan. I watched and I watched the whole series again later on. Uh, I mean, it's right up my alley. It's it's the it's the digestible David Lynch because the the second series that came out recently is is I mean it, it it's so inaccessible. Um, I mean, it's really inaccessible to the to an average viewer as are most of his things, and I think that's why you know with hipsters and and the pretentious, I think that's why he gets people love him so much. But Twin Peaks is 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 pretty accessible. Um, but I I did not see the connection. Between, I never thought of it as a horror show, right? I mean, it is kind of. There are definitely supernatural elements. The cat, the red and black cabin. Uh, you know, Bob, the the spirit that kind of inhabits people. So I guess there are elements. Um, but I, I never really thought of it being inspired by Kolchak. Now, are you saying that as as um, as an academic who's who's noticing these connections, or did David Lynch say, or Mike Mark Frost say, "Hey, I took it from Kolchak." They, Mike Mark Frost, Mark Frost actually talks about that, but the, the other part, I, I think this is probably in the book in an end note or something, but um, the ABC executives who decided to go forward with Twin Peaks did quite explicitly talk about they wanted to kind of capture that Carl Kolchak creepy factor. So I agree with you. It's not quite as close as X-Files or Supernatural, but the idea of... A, an investigator comes into some strange gothic world and has to try and figure out what's going on. At least the network executives were saying, this is like what we loved about Kolchak, right? This is what made Kolchak work. And of course, it, it was a little more of a coherent narrative and it did build at least until it got 
you know, right. strange. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, because I mean, X Files feels like I, like Fox Mulder is Carl Kolchek 2.0. You know, I mean, it, that is that yeah. show is Kolchek for a modern audience. They really Chris Carter really nailed everything in that show. And in many ways, in in the early, certainly the first couple of seasons. Scully plays kind of like Tony Vincenzo, who's always the right. skeptical, <laughs> yeah. cynical yeah. editor for Carl Kolchak saying, that's crazy. How could you think that? And so that I think you're exactly right. Not just the the mirroring of Kolchak, but Kolchak and Tony mm-hmm. and that clash of personalities. That was what drove audiences to see the X-Files. So I think you're exactly yeah. right. Yeah, definitely. And and to go back to this to the story elements that you mentioned, you know, I wrote down it's that that formula I think is really what I got out of the book was it's the formula it's the character of the gothic investigator, that idea and also the formula, the kind of the monster of the week which includes, you know, uh, uh it starts out as a mundane story, you know, there's a supernatural element that Kolchak kind of stumbles across. He gets, you know, he kind of gets that in his craw to go and find it out. He learns more about the lore. He investigates it. He realizes it must be defeated. Then he alone, you know, with everyone against him, must defeat the the monster. And then when he does, all evidence uh, and proof that the event happened are completely destroyed. And I have to tell you, you know, I worked on this on this uh, this sitcom called Two and a Half Men, and I was amazed how every single week the writers were able to take the joke they told last week. And retell it again <laughs> the next week, and still make it funny, even though it was exactly the same joke. And that 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 beauty of television, in a lot of ways, holds true here in Kolchak because I am amazed every episode that I watched how they have a unique way that the evidence gets des- gets destroyed and no one believes him. Whether they they hang a murder rap over his head, or there's a random fire and everything goes, or there's a you know the aliens take off with with every. I mean, it, it's just it's you know it's kudos to them for coming up with that. Well, my favorite of those is uh, there's a great episode called The Energy Eater where there's a uh, uh, building a new hospital wing unearths uh, an ancient invisible name of God uh, who wants to suck energy out of people. And uh, to, to resolve it, they flood it and put him underwater. And he goes, apparently that makes him go to sleep. But of course, that also takes all the evidence. Right. So yeah, no, Kolchak <laughs> was always that, you know, Cassandra, he would say, there's something horrible happening, and then it would get covered up. But I think, you know, if we think of the 1970s, that was, you know, that was a time where we were learning as a country that there really were conspiracies, mm-hmm. like yeah, the, that the yeah. Nixon administration had worked to break in, they had covered it up, that the, that the Pentagon knew the war in Vietnam was going badly, that they were losing, that people were dying, that there was no real chance of success, and they tried to keep that buried. And then it was reporters who were the ones who brought that truth out. Yeah. And of course, it's also worth remembering, you know, the 70s was also a time of a lot of conspiracy theories and yep. paranoia and yep. UFO mania yep. was pretty high. The Amityville horror was just in 1977 and that got nationwide, uh, you know, attention of the haunted house in Long Island. Mm-hmm. And let's, there are lots of things in Long Island. I'm not sure haunted <laughs> houses is that. Um, so I think yeah. Kolchak kind of picked up on exactly that spirit uh, and the idea that when you find the truth, they are going to wipe it out. Yeah. Well, it, and it's interesting how, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we see a lot of conspiracies, being proven, as you mentioned there, but I mean, even even some supernatural stuff, like you look at what's going on in the UFO world. 
I mean, you know, you got the Pentagon starting to admit things. Videos are coming out. This had been going on before. I mean, this is what Fox Mulder talked about. This was going on in the 70s. You know, people were talking about this. And, you know, and just like in that series, everyone's like, oh, you're a kook, blah, blah, blah. You know, but it's that enlightened man who's fighting against, you know, it's not only the darkness of where the, the supernatural elements live, but it's the darkness of ignorance that he's fighting against. And that seersucker suit is the beacon of, of you know, the, the Illuminati, the, the, the illuminated intelligent one. Uh, as he traverses this world. Uh, but, you know, and I think that that made me really um, kind of identify with him because I, I love all that stuff, you know, and I've always had this thing about, you know, what is, are UFOs real? Are they not? I require much more proof, just like Kolchak. Uh, but but I think people like me, there are lots of people like that who question, and I think they really identify with him, Fox Mulder, you know, even the characters of Fringe, um, you know, and that's what I think makes this so long-lasting. No, I think you're right. We certainly, the longer I live, the more I realize how much is happening that, you know, we're not aware of. Yeah. But it's also, I think, you know, I think the interesting thing to me about that period in the 70s and, and really the period now, it was also a period where there was not a lot of trust in authority and government. Like we, we didn't think that we could necessarily assume if when the government shows up and says, we're here to help people in the 70s says, Oh, right. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, we're at a moment in culture where most people look at their government with some suspicion mm -hmm. and maybe even some outright animosity. Sure. And so there was Carl fighting the evil, protecting us, but also fighting against the authorities. He was constantly being roughed up by the cops, yep. thrown out of meetings, thrown out of offices. Like he was anti-establishment even while he was protecting us from all those creepy things around the edges. Yeah, well, I think that that's the perfect job. The investigative reporter is the job that, you know, it allows him to do all that. Although I did find it interesting in the series when he would just – hear over a police scanner that something was happening, you know, spin his Mustang around, do a U-turn, be, maybe not, I mean, almost beat the officers on the scene and then start barking out orders like, hey, put this fire out over here. Hey, the guy's over there. And it's like, yeah, he's a reporter. He's not a cop. So I understood why then the sergeant would come on the scene and be like, get this idiot out of here. You know, uh, but it was funny because, you know, that's the magic of television where he is the star. So he gets to bark orders, but that loses the reality of there's no way anyone would let him get involved, especially the cops who were annoyed by him constantly you know, from his antics. Yeah. I've always said I, I would, I like watching Carl Kolchak. I would not like to work with <laughs> Carl Kolchak because I mean, he was yeah. constantly taking over everybody's space and barging in <laughs> yeah. and barking orders, yeah. and making demands that were ridiculous. Yeah. And it's like, that's funny to watch, but if I was working with him, I, I think we'd have to have. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely <laughs> not. Um, but you know, I, I, that kind of destroyed the reality element, but that's a TV, you know, part of it, but what kind of had it rooted in reality. And I think you kind of touched on this earlier was not only that they took gothic monsters and brought them into your kind of living room, but they really, in a lot of ways, rooted them in a reality that made it believable is a strong word, but we're allowed to, let's say, suspend disbelief, you know, that, that old, that old adage. And, you know, you know, even the, the Night Stalker, the, the movie, you've got a vampire that's rooted in reality. You know, he's, he has to buy a car to get around the city. He's got to talk to a real estate agent to find a place to sleep. He's stealing bottles of blood, you know, from, from a hospital. Um, you know, he's stalking victims coming out of casinos. You know, he's looking for that, you know, he's, he's got the kind of serial killer mentality that we would see as a, as a character in later on proceedings. Uh, but but I thought that was really interesting because Carl Kolchak basically 
tracks him down using the analog versions of what we would do today, which is tracking them digitally, checking their credit card transactions, you know, checking their uh, all the stuff they're doing online. He does that in the analog way, finding out, <laughs> getting the real estate agent. Like, that's my favorite part. I've never heard of that before, but I, I love that. Uh, but that, to me, made it uniquely 70s because this show is very, very 70s. Um, but also it, it made it very real, which was something I don't think was really done at the time. No, and I, I think you're exactly right. And I go back to that original 1972 movie, The Night Stalker, again, hugely successful. And for me, that was the big uh, uh, news of that movie. It took, as you say, the tr- very traditional old school vampire. We'd all seen Bella Lugosi and, you know, Frank Langella with his big, you know, cape and all mm-hmm. that. But put him in very much in the real world. And for me, one of the kind of really great moments of that first TV movie, if, if people track it down, uh, is right at the beginning. We start with this uh, Carl sort of telling the story. And then we have this uh, young woman leaving her job uh, on the Vegas Strip and being followed and murdered. And then as the credits are rolling, we see the autopsy. And we actually see from her body point of view as these medical people are looking and they start saying, wait, there's no blood. How is there no blood? And that's when the, you know, the Night Stalker title comes up. We move into the movie. That is what grounds, you know, when we see Bella Lugosi doing things, it's like that was then over there in black and white, whatever. (laughs) But seeing it on the strip with the lights, with a real autopsy, with, with a real police, you know, uh, press conference, just like we have in cities when there's a kind of shocking murder that makes it feel maybe it's a little closer than we think. And so I think that was a big part of helping Kolchak develop this horror narrative. But also that's kind of what helped to change TV horror. Like later series would not go back to Transylvania. Right. <laughs> you know, they would continue being in this modern world with our modern procedures. And that was that was really crucial. Well, and it's kind of funny how, you know, so normally when I was in, when I was studying film, you watch the evolution of a genre. Something becomes, you know, something starts out in the independent scene, catches a little bit of fire, moves its way into pop culture, becomes extremely popular. Then as it's going on, the formula becomes stale and it moves out of pop culture. Uh, and then it becomes, you know, then it becomes the thing you don't want to do because, you know, it moves moves out of favor and then becomes postmodern where it becomes kind of cool again. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's this whole kind of cycle, right? It's kind of kind of how, how things go. And and Kolchak in a lot of ways kind of fits into that because you 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 have it become extraordinarily popular. Um but then at the same time all this horror stuff is going on in the 70s you not only have horror, you know, movies coming out. You know, uh, let me run down my list here, but you have, you know, The Exorcist, um, you've got Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead. Those are in the 60s, but as we move into the 70s, Exorcist was in 73. But then you have Young Frankenstein in 74. You've got The Munsters and The Addams Family coming in. You've got Scooby-Doo, which comes out in the late 70s. So almost within the 70s, you see it go from being taken seriously to then you know, once you hit that comedy, you're out of the popular, right? Like you're coming down on the downswing. Once you start making fun of it, it's 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 on its way out, uh, which I found that to be kind of strange. But does did that event, that arc that I'm describing, did that in any way influence why Kolchak the Night Stalker started out as being an extraordinarily popular made for TV movie where a third of the country is watching it? Three years later, it becomes a series and is canceled after 20 episodes. I, I mean, is it, is it, is it more than that? Is that, is that an aspect of it? You know, I don't know how this in the seventies, how it worked. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's definitely an aspect of it. And, you know, th there's this period that, that some of us who study horror call the second golden age. So, you know, the first golden age is the universal monsters when horror first kind of gets defined as a genre. Then there's this period roughly from 68 till, let's say, 1982. And 68 is Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead, kind of big blow up in the door. Then you get to 1982 when The Thing, John Carpenter's movie, kind of fizzles at the box office because people don't want that anymore. But in between are, as you say, all of those iconic movies, Texas Chainsaw, mm -hmm. Last House on the right. Left, The Exorcist, yeah. Friday the 13th, Alien, I can go on and on yeah, and on. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Halloween, yeah. Amityville yeah, Horror, yeah. all these iconic things going on. And Kolchak starts, The Night Stalkers, right at the beginning of that cycle, 72. When people are coming back to horror and horror in the movie theaters is a lot darker. It's got more of an edge. It's a lot more violent. Uh, it's a lot more nihilistic. Like, you know, as you say, with Night of the Living Dead, you're not surviving. Mm -hmm. Even our hero is not going right. to make it. Like, we feel like the world's falling yeah. apart. And so the first movie has a lot of that tone. It's a lot darker. The second movie, a little bit of that. But when you get to series TV now, as you say... TV has to be a little bit lighter, certainly prime time. You know, you're talking Friday night and the lead into Night Stalker was the $6 million man. Right, right, yeah. So, yeah. you know, you can't have uh, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left following up, you know, otherwise we end up back with Night of the Living Dead shown in the kids' matinee. <laughs> right. Like it does, yeah, not, it work. does not work. Yeah. So the tone gets lighter and it does start to take on a much more kind of comedic, as you say, you know, the the Munsters, the Adams Family, the young Frankenstein. And they're trying in the series to balance this kind of lighthearted banter between Tony and Carl and the, the other reporters. There's Ron Updike, who they call uptight. There's Miss Emily, who's this octogenarian who talks about sex life. You know, So there's these kind of funny characters, a little bit like the Two and a Half Men, where you've got these kind of side characters that add little bits of personality. But it's hard to balance that over and over again with a really threatening monster. And so as the series goes on, you know, the first episode, The Ripper, which is about Jack the Ripper being immortal, that's got a lot of edge to it. But as you go on, it starts to get a lot less edgy, a lot less dark. You also get a lot of uh, guest stars. So like Jamie Farr uh, from MASH is a guest star. Uh, Kathy Lee Crosby, who had been Wonder Woman in a TV movie, is a guest star. So it starts to feel like a television series as opposed to like those really dark films that audiences are going to see like The Exorcist and Halloween. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, cause I think you really hit on it in the book is when you talk about the the movies, like the made for TV movies, um, it's a different tone. It's a different it's a different team. Um, uh, and it's uh, and and they you can tell a full story. And then it's over. But the unique quality of television, which is why I, I, which is why I wanted to study television, which is why I love television, is the ongoing serial nature of it. And I think a lot of that, you know, we, I come back to that. I think when you don't, when you don't, when you're not taking advantage of the uniquely advantageous aspects of television, you're going to have a failed series on your hands, no matter how greater edgy because even you know because you know you mentioned that the hour and stuff the series had to follow television network rules of course but so did the made for tv movies like they were what they weren't shown in the theater they were they were made for television and uh, they showed what you could do with the genre and i think they were fantastic you can still see them on youtube i'll put links on on the webpage that's, that's how i saw them uh but but you know it, it's I want to talk about because when you when we talk about the influences of you know the show and how it worked, you can't 
you can't end that discussion without talking a little bit about the behind the scenes, because I thought this was really incredible. And these are the guys who really made the show work. And in film, you know, we talk about there being an auteur, someone who is, you know, like a Francis Ford Coppola in the Godfather series or Quentin Tarantino. These guys who are really, it's a French term for author, meaning their their stamp of creativity is put on on the work. And here you have this great, you kind of call it like an auteur by committee. You know, I mean, it's kind of great. It's Dan Curtis, Richard Matheson, and Darren McGavin. But let's walk through. Richard Matheson's obviously the most notable of that group. But let's just, you know, kind of quickly talk about what they did and how they worked together to gel to make the, let's just focus on the made for TV movies, which were clearly a phenomenal success. Yeah, I think the one other person that that should be mentioned, and, and I don't give him as much credit, and I would say if people really love the series, I always have to say this, there's a wonderful guy named Mark Dwidziak uh, who wrote a book called The Night Stalker Companion that's now out of print, but is supposed to be coming back. Mark is a TV reporter, and he is the encyclopedia of Night Stalker. And Mark makes the point, I think it's true, you know, Night Stalker and Carl Kolchak started as an unpublished novel by a, a guy named Jeff Rice. And Jeff Rice... Uh, was a very uh, creative person, uh, had a complicated life, but let's just leave it at that. Um, so he was the originator, but you're exa- so now I'll go with okay. you. But having said sure. that, now I'm forgiven. <laughs> uh, I do think the the popular structure or construction of Carl Kolchak is these three folks. And so, you know, Richard Matheson, um, folks will definitely know him as the author of I Am Legend. Uh, the Shrinking Man, which became the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man. He wrote a lot of Twilight Zone episodes. He wrote uh, Have Gun, Will Travel episodes. Um, so he was known as kind of the master of macabre in television formats, right? He was very good at that. So you've got – Now, just to, uh, let me pause you for a second. So just to give people kind of an idea who may not know the name, like he is to Stephen King what Carl Kolchak is to Fox Mulder. Right. Like Richard Matheson existed, did all of this stuff and really inspired a guy like Stephen King, um, who is now considered the master macabre, although he might be. I mean, he's been doing this for 50 years, so I'm sure there's other people who have taken over. For he's a 70 year old man now. Um, but I still love his books. But, you know, but you know what I'm saying? Like he was kind of the precursor to that and, and doing all this stuff back at a time, you know, when it wasn't being done. Yeah. I mean, Stephen King has said, uh, I think it was when Matheson died, he said, without Matheson, I, I would not have existed uh, and George Romero, going back to Night of the Living Dead, uh, famously had lunch with Matheson to apologize for essentially ripping off I Am Legend <laughs> to make Night of the Living Dead. Like he said, yeah, you're right. I totally ripped you off. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't make any money on the movie. Yeah. So, I, you know, right. and everything right. was good. So Richard Matheson was, you know, again, really sub- amazingly influential horror novelist as well as science fiction, as well as television. So then the, the person brought on to produce is another figure that is is maybe a name folks haven't heard, um, Dan Curtis. Dan Curtis had been uh, in the Navy. He'd actually gone to Syracuse University where I teach. He went out to Hollywood and got his start making uh, sports shows. So he was making like celebrity golf shows that were selling those to CBS. Then he had a dream about a woman standing on the rocky coast of Maine uh, in front of some gothic old house, and he decided that should be a series, and he sold that to ABC as Dark Shadows, uh, which was uh, incredibly popular. Again, this is another series that people probably have forgotten. Daytime soap opera, it eventually had a vampire named Barnabas Collins, it had time travel, it had multiple dimensions, it had Lovecraftian old gods. I mean, it was like every wacky gothic idea you could think of, um, but hugely popular, ran for a long time. So Dan Curtis comes in because Dan Curtis was really good at taking crazy gothic monster ideas and translating those into acceptable TV practice. Like he was a genius at that. Uh, 
Then, of course, to get their star, they knew they wanted somebody who brought that sense of kind of weather beaten, right? You know, a little bit older, a little bit uh, familiar. Uh, and so Darren McGavin, who had, as I, as I mentioned, he had been, uh, you know, on television most of his career. He'd been in all kinds of shows from Westerns to, uh, you know, Mickey Splain's uh, Mike Hammer. So people were immediately willing to accept him as this grizzled reporter who has seen, you know, his best days, but is fighting to get back. And that trio crafted those first two movies uh, in ways that established the mythology. That is really what laid the foundation. And then the series tried to build on that. It added a lot, but I don't know that it really changed that core foundation. Well, and it's funny because you mentioned Dan Curtis. Um, when, when he gets brought in, Matheson actually had a little bit of, <laughs> was a little contentious because Matheson remembered Curtis as being the guy who made an insultingly low bid for one of his novels. Uh, look, man, everyone's petty. No one forgets, right? But they, they, <laughs> they not in Hollywood, baby. Uh, you always remember who slighted you. Remember that, everyone listening. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but I mean, it's funny because then they ended up bearing the hatchet. Money money solves all problems. And then they created these. But you, you what I love is you kind of outline, because you call it a, an auteur by committee, which is interesting, but you also outlined what did they bring to it. And Matheson, you know, he kind of brought paranoid isolation. Um, you said white male protagonist. That seems hardly unique to him. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, maybe in the 70s that was important. If I can just add to that, I think the thing about the, the white male protagonist that Matheson brought was a kind of self-consciously white male protagonist. So again, I oh, think okay. I, to me, the iconic, if, I, if you want to understand Matheson, it's I Am Legend. And, and, and again, for those of you uh, who haven't read it, spoiler alert, in the novel, we have our, our main protagonist surrounded by vampires. They're trying to get him, trying to get in. Every day he goes out and kills them. If he can find them at night, he bunkers in. In the end, he finds out that while he's been trying to kill the monster that were the vampires, they have a whole nighttime society and he is their monster. Right. Yeah. He is the one they're yeah. afraid. He's the one that they tell other vampires, beware, because this human comes out <laughs> during the day and kills you, so you better be. Right. And he realizes, oh my yeah. God, I have become the monster. And I think that I is see. what Matheson gets about race and gender and heroes that you gotta be careful not to get too invested in that. Otherwise, you become the thing that's got here. it. OK, that makes sense. Um, and, and, and so that makes sense. And that in, in, with the investigative process as he go, you know, as he goes through it. But it's interesting because those are the three aspects that Matheson brings, which are interesting. And then Dan Curtis, you know, uh, blending traditional and modern horror, as he did with with Dark Shadows. Um, he also, as a as a, um, as a producer, understood the limitations of broadcast television, which seems kind of silly, but in, as a matter of fact, knowing the rules of a game make you able to play it better. So that, to me, is an extraordinarily valuable asset. Uh, and then Darren McGavin, as you you know mentioned, he you know he um, was able to bring. He is able to, as an actor, bring the elements of, you know, the backstory, the 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 things that make it unique. What does what makes Carl Kolchak unique? I think only really an actor can bring those nuances. You can paint it. A writer can paint a broad brush and they can have what they want in their mind. But once you put another human being in that role, they make it their own. They put on that ill-fitting seersucker suit and, and make it their own. That, to me, is, is really key there. Um, but before we finish on this behind the scenes, I want to quickly mention that Carl Kolchak actually had lots of incredibly influential people, not the least of which was Robert Singer, who was an AP. He went on to do Supernatural. They even named a character in Supernatural 
after Robert Singer, who then in some weird way ends up on The Boys, which is another Eric Kripke show. So his he has quite a long-lasting legacy. Uh, and then David Chase. I mean, I think the first maybe two or three episodes of the Kolchak series are written by David Chase, who famously created The Sopranos. Uh, quite a shift, you know, uh, quite, a, quite a different little shift there. Um, and then, you know, and I think in one of the first episodes, Margaret Hamilton was such a interesting, The Wicked Witch of the West was interesting to see to see on the show. And, you know, uh, as you mentioned, Chris Carter, Eric Kripke, uh, you even mentioned Guillermo del Toro wished he had edited, you know, which he had um, been able to direct an episode. So lots of influence, but also lots of people connected to the show went on to do great things, not only in the genre, but in other genres. Yeah, it was, again, like, you know, a lot of classic 70s television. We had a lot of people coming in and out and writers and a lot of folks getting their start as, you know, production assistants yeah. and script writers and, and cleaning up scripts. Uh, lots of the guest stars moving through. But also, I think, you know, to me, it's the number of people who are now making, you know, the key narratives of our culture, you know, Del Toro and David Chase and others, who will look back to that, not just as one of, you know, hundreds of series. And again, folks who, who don't spend time like you and I do with TV history, the the graveyard of television is filled with one season, half season, three yeah. episodes, yeah. Two, a pilot and one episode <laughs> turned into a TV movie yeah. and dumped. Like it is a, it is it, it, a, a series that only ran 20 episodes for it to have had the impact on the culture, on the creators of the culture that is, I won't say entirely unprecedented, but it's certainly unique. Certainly. It's unique for a series that has such a short run to still be talked about today and still be influencing, you know, shows like I think The Walking Dead has has some cold check elements. Certainly Lovecraft Country, which was super yeah, popular was on HBO. Yeah. I mean, that was the same thing. Like these people who feel the need to investigate mm -hmm. this bigger narrative. And that is Echoes of Carl Kolchak. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing the the, the how influential it was. Um, you know, and then quickly, I was on uh, a television show that was a pilot, got bought to series. Uh, I was on the series. They produced seven episodes and then canceled it before a single episode aired. So this is the type of wacky stuff that can happen in the television business. So as you said, it is amazing that a show like this could have this level of influence. Um, but, you know, I think... You know, and I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I think this book and your work in horror, I hope you are as influential in horror as Kolchak was in the television world. <laughs> uh, so let, let's sell some books here. So it's Carl, it's it's Kolchak, the Night Stalker is the name of the book. But how can people get in touch with you if they want to get the book or they want to, you know, just have a conversation or tell you how great Rob Zombie is and that you're an insane madman for suggesting otherwise? Yeah, well, you're welcome to line up. So uh, absolutely. First of all, you can uh, welcome people to follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am at Dark Projections on Twitter, and you're welcome to, to follow me there. Uh, certainly look me up at Syracuse University, uh, Kendall Phillips. You can find me uh, on the university website there. And I also have a page on Amazon, so if folks want to get uh, the latest book, which I've flipped hey up here, the Carl Kolchak, the Night Stalker book there, or any of the other little missives I've written on horror, feel free. Uh, and they're welcome to track me down at Syracuse and send me all kinds of emails telling me how I'm a blithering idiot. I assure you, <laughs> I have students that tell me that on a daily basis, so I, it will not be news to me. All right, well, that that is the place to do it. And of course, if you want to find this show uh, and learn more about, you know, more about horror, more about anything you want, we do quite a bit on this show. The website is fascinatingnouns.com and you can find me, uh, find the show on Twitter at Fascinating Noun and on Facebook. Facebook at Fascinating Nouns. Uh, but speaking of Fascinating Nouns, you definitely fit the bill 
uh, Dr. Kendall Phillips, who likes to go as just Kendall and not the country music star. Uh, but this has been fascinating. You you opened my light. You shed light on this series that you made me watch this series, maybe interested in it in ways that I never thought were possible, despite the fact that I'm known as the master of film and television on my other podcast, FGGBT, sticking in the shameless plug at the end, because you got one right in at the beginning, and I love what you did. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Kendall, thank you so much for this book, and, and thank you for your time, and thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a real honor. I'm a big fan of the show, and it's been exciting to talk to you. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.